think about all the things pressuring higher ed right now, you know, we've got the enrollment cliff where, you know, fewer and fewer students are enrolling in higher education over the last few years. The great resignation where we see a large chunk of our staff either have left or are planning to leave their jobs. We've got budgetary pressures, competition from alternative potential providers, increased expectations from students. I mean, like the list goes on about the pressures on higher ed right now. And in some ways the most scary is the increasing lack of confidence in the value proposition of higher education. Less than half of Americans in 2022 saw value in higher education, and that's that's really scary. The Digital to Learn podcast is dedicated to exploring both what's new and what's good in the use of technology in teaching and learning. Our mission is to have the best minds sitting in front of our microphones, sharing evidence-based strategies for digital teaching and learning. Digital to Learn is brought to you by the Center for Learning and Innovation at Indiana Wesleyan University. Thank you for joining us. And now, the Digital to Learn podcast. Welcome to the Digital to Learn podcast. I'm Tiffany Snyder, and I'm here with my co-host, Brad Garner. Hey, Brad. Hello, hello. This is one of our first recordings of the new year, 2023, and we're excited to welcome onto the Digital to Learn podcast, Kathy Pelletier. With more than 20 years of experience in higher education across areas such as advising, academic support, curriculum design, and competency-based education, Dr. Kathy Pelletier is currently the director of the teaching and learning program at EDUCAUSE. She brings an expertise for combining traditional higher education evidence-based practice with innovative delivery models. She's been recognized by the International Center for Supplemental Instruction for starting and scaling the first online supplemental instruction program. And she has also been recognized for a hybrid program and course framework that creates a structure for faculty that balances creativity, consistency, and quality. Kathy has accomplished such things as building an online student success center from scratch, establishing a competency-based curriculum model that became an anchor for a self-paced CBE program, developing an assessment and outreach system that delivered personalized resource recommendations to incoming students, and guiding faculty communities of practice. We are so honored to be joined today by Dr. Kathy Pelletier. Welcome to the podcast, Kathy. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to talk to you too. Thanks. Well, I'm going to pass the baton over to Brad because he told me pre-show he may or may not have something prepared. Uh, I, no comment. <laughs> so what we'd like to do to start, Kathy, is have some get acquainted questions. These are kind of fun. So tell us, what do you typically do when you're bored? Oh, wow. You know, I've actually been thinking a lot recently about my relationship with boredom. So apparently when I'm bored, I think about being bored or vice versa. But I am a person that I tend to kind of perpetually need to be productive. And so I'm really trying to break myself of that by letting myself be bored. I also meant trying to train, I have a seven and 11 year old children and it's always like they turn off their screen and they're bored. And so I'm trying to model this kind of like, be present, just be here and chill. So embracing the boredom. So when you're not working, do you have other leisure pursuits that you enjoy? I do. I read probably two books a week. I'm definitely wow. a fiction fanatic, not nonfiction. I go between the snooty literary fiction and the fluffy <laughs> stuff to get a break from the, the heart-wrenching <laughs> stories. Excellent. And I knit as well. And I actually started a temperature blanket this year where you 
code different colors of yarn based on the 10 degree block of temperature. And then each day you figure out what the average temperature is and that's the color of your yarn for that row. So your blanket becomes 365 rows wow. long. And uh, yeah, so I'm wow. a few weeks in and I haven't quit yet. So that's a good sign. So I'm guessing these times of boredom last maybe five minutes. I know. Well, see, that's the whole productivity <laughs> thing. Like I like to make stuff. <laughs> oh, kind of a, a funny question. What do you think your last words will be? Oh, man. Um, you know, it might depend on how old I am when I die, because I, I may or may not have more wisdom the older <laughs> I get. But I actually, and this hopefully not, this isn't bringing things down too much, but I had the honor of being with my dad when he passed away. And it was really kind of special that he had lung cancer. And so we kind of knew it was toward the end. And we had a few days of really amazing lucidity where we called the family in and we visited and everybody had an opportunity to spend some time with him. And you know, we talked about some big stuff, but mostly it was just having that conversation and for him to say, it's okay to let me go. And so I feel like I would want that when I die. So I might not have any mysterious or profound things to say, um, just being able to tell my people that I love them and, and mm. that I releasing them and they're going to be fine after I'm gone. Very good. Huh. I don't know how to follow that up exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I know. And I think, Brad, you included that get to know you question. And what a get to know you question. So my dad died. Like, Brad, that's, I said, funny, funny was that <laughs> funny question. What I really meant was I'm nervous to ask, <laughs> <laughs> but you handled it so beautifully. So, <laughs> and we did get to know you better. So Kathy, one of the things we don't tell our guests before they come on is that in every episode, we have a secret word. Okay. And if you say the secret word, you win a million dollars. Oh, okay. Is it uh, my dad died? I will also tell you that no one's won. <laughs> okay. However, when you win the million dollars, what will you do with the money? Oh, man. These are really cool questions. I'm going to save these and ask them to my friends and family. Yeah, I feel like you don't really know how you're going to respond in those kinds of extreme situations of either winning a lot of money or being in a disaster. And, you know, you think you're going to be the person who runs into the fire, but most likely you'll be the person who's running the other way. I don't know. I think, well, certainly my retirement fund could use a boost. So that instead of working <laughs> until I'm 103, I might put some in there. This maybe this isn't creative enough, but I think you know, donating to causes I care about and helping friends and family who might need a little boost. But with taxes, that stuff doesn't go very far. So, I, you know, I get the budget, that million dollars and, and make sure I spend it wisely. You are so responsible and productive. And <laughs> right, <I know. laughs> so just hypothetically, if you were going to buy one like really ridiculous thing that you've always wanted, what would it be? One ridiculous thing. So I have a 19 year old son as well. And we had a lot of crazy ice during the whole big ice business that many of us had across the country and crashed his car. So we had to find a new one. And I was driving a 2012 Honda Odyssey had, you know, 10 years of French fries that were between the seats. And so I very, very unselfishly decided to donate that car to, to Henry. And so then I had to buy myself a new car, which oh. I, was, I was very excited about. And, but yeah. being responsible, I did not go super crazy, but the one feature that was my main filter when I was looking for cars was a steering wheel heater, oh, which yeah. 
that's the best. So I, <laughs> I would invest in warmth. <laughs> yes. I resonate with that. <laughs> All right. Another funny question and air quotes here. What rumor could you create about yourself just to be the talk of the town? What rumor? Man. Okay. Hopefully this is not setting the tone for the whole conversation because it actually makes you really anxious thinking about like being the talk of the town and spreading rumors about myself. Both of those things make me incredibly anxious. <laughs> One of the books I just read is I think hot now. It's called The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo. And it follows Evelyn Hugo and her seven husbands. And Evelyn is a Hollywood celebrity. And she actually, as the book progresses, she plants scandals about herself so that she can secretly live the life that she wants to live. (laughs) And, you know, I think, gosh, either she has the most amazing ego and just doesn't care what people think, or it's just really sad that she doesn't kind of have the privilege of authenticity that she has to to go to this, (laughs) these great lengths. So Yeah. So I really do have this kind of compulsion toward authenticity. And so the idea of misleading people about who I am, even, even for good or well for evil either, but (laughs) one of the things that I think about rumors is that they definitely take different shapes, the more people who are talking. And so I, that is just a really interesting thought experiment of like, what, what would be the thing that I would plant? And then how would that grow and change and morph into something else that I could never even have imagined that <laughs> maybe would make me the top. Maybe I'll spread a rumor about my amazing knitting skills and then we'll absolutely how that comes back. <laughs> well, we just uncovered what book you're reading or, or one <laughs> of the two books that you read yep. last week or something like that. So I feel, yeah. I wrote it down. Sounds interesting. <laughs> it's good. So we've been kind of building up to this question. Mm-hmm. What is your favorite musical instrument? Oh yeah, this is a good one. (laughs) Finally, a question that's easy to answer and may make some people laugh. I love bagpipes. (laughs) I just have a visceral love of bagpipes. And I have since I was a child, I don't know what it is anytime, especially when they're live, like the vibration, the resonance, you know, I feel both weepy and fierce when I hear them. Wow. And I always tell people this when they're skeptical, because oftentimes people will say, oh man, there's only one bagpipe song. How could you like me? It's just the same song over and over. <laughs> there are more than 9,000 bagpipe songs. So there's a lot of listening available to us. And there's a rumor that you actually have a bagpipe playlist. Is that true? <laughs> Maybe that's the rumor that has yeah. been spreading. <laughs> I actually don't have a bagpipe playlist, but I will see bagpipes live whenever I can. And in fact, I live really close to McAllister College and they have a pipe band. And when you are walking on the quad at the right time, oftentimes they will practice on the quad and they'll stand in various places on the quad individually for the acoustics, I think. And so it's just this very haunting, but beautiful. And then they'll come together in a big group and they'll play again. And again, the acoustics just make it bigger than than it would if they were in any other place so that's a favorite spot to hang out for me so do you have like a favorite bagpipist or i don't know what you call them bagpipe player yeah i don't know a piper probably um i recently had a chance to see so it's less about the individual piper and more about the ensemble you know because it's that's part of the deal and i recently saw a show for the 60th anniversary 
of, oh gosh, a local pipe band, a local to the St. Paul area. And they, at the 60th anniversary of this band, family, you know, generation after generation has been a part of this band. There were children wow. in the band learning how to drum and, you know, people that could barely walk. And they played, I think they probably played for four or five hours and intermixed with some other Irish music, but mm. it was, it was pretty cool. Well, as fate would have it, I have a bagpipe joke. Ooh, go for it. What's the difference between an onion and a bagpipe? I give up. I hate, I love dad jokes, but I am terrible at guessing. Nobody cries when you cut up a bagpipe. <laughs> Brad, that's a good one. <laughs> Oddly enough, if you Google bagpipe jokes, there are a bunch of them. <laughs> oh, There's 9,000 as many as there are. <laughs> There's even a warning that said that they may include profanity. So. <laughs> Oh, no. Oh. oh, man. All right, let's get serious. Yeah. On Inside Higher Ed, Jason Wingard observed that higher ed must change or die. Is that hyperbole or reality? Well, it gets your attention, right? Yeah. <laughs> You know, so in that piece, Wingard was recalling a speech given by Nokia's president to his staff back in 2011, which was actually referring to jump or die, which is the really tough and urgent decision that oil rig workers have to face when there's an explosion. They either have to jump in the ocean or they die. And before we talk about higher ed, let's talk about Nokia a bit. So in 1998, I think it was, Nokia was the largest mobile phone brand in the world. And by 2007, they had continued to grow. They had 51% of the world's market share. And I'm not a big market person, uh, so I actually had to look this up. But right now, Apple has only 25% of the global market share of mobile phones. So just as a comparison. Wow. So Nokia was a giant. But they made some mistakes. So they didn't really acknowledge the potential for disruption of the Android or iOS operating systems. They had some organizational issues, a chaotic culture and some other mismanagement stuff. And they were really unwilling to shift from the, you know, the flip phone with the great battery toward the smartphone design. And, and those really kind of were the death knell for Nokia. And so remember 2007, they had 51% of the market share. By 2013, they sold themselves to Microsoft and they kind of went away. So, you know, it really is not impossible that something as solid as higher education could potentially go away. So I do think that it's perhaps hyperbole, but definitely something to pay attention to. And when you think about all the things pressuring higher ed right now, you know, we've got the enrollment cliff where, you know, fewer and fewer students are enrolling in higher education over the last few years, the great resignation where we see a large chunk of our staff either have left or are planning to leave their jobs. We've got budgetary pressures, competition from alternative credential providers, increased expectations from students. I mean, like the list goes on about the pressures on higher ed right now. And in some ways, the most scary is the increasing lack of confidence in the value proposition of higher education. Less than half of Americans in 2022 saw value in higher education. And that's, that's really scary. So we really have to take the the Nokia story as a cautionary tale. And, you know, the things that we've talked about, I just 
are really these grand challenges that are complex, they're important. They certainly, you can think about them at the institutional level, but they really affect the field as a whole and, and should be addressed as the field as a whole. And so what I would suggest is that we collectively and individually tune into some of those signals in higher ed and the trends that might shape higher ed, things like chat GPT and generative AI, that is like the biggest disruption of higher education that I have seen in my 25 or so year career and other things that will enable us to become more resilient and adaptive and proactive in addressing challenges and really taking action now to plan and set the foundation for the future that we want to have. And those are really the things I think that we should focus our attention to so that we, we don't die. What are some of the things that you think that separate the survivors from the fatalities in terms of institutions? Yeah, I do think that that institutional resilience is huge and the proactive capacity for change. And one of the major things that I think is equipping institutions to effectively transform themselves or to effectively change is a culture of collaboration across silos. That's, you know, a barrier if you don't have it, but a great enabler if you do and, and really difficult. All of us, I'm sure, have worked most of the organizations we work in um, have silos and, and it's often tricky to, to have that kind of collaboration and a general elasticity and willingness to change. And that means taking risks, but not dumb risks, right? It's not just doing whatever, but it's it's really, that'll, that'll be my quote of the day, not dumb risks. Um, but, you know, really being intentional and thoughtful about, you know, using data to inform your decisions recognizing the impact of your actions collectively and individually. And, and so, so those two things, and certainly being equipped with technology is another factor as well. And I also wonder to what extent institutions are comfortable with who they are, but then also see other institutions doing clever and creative things and think, hey, let's do that. Yes. Even with no data to say that's really a good thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. But I also think that there's an interesting, especially now that, I mean, code isn't over, obviously, but now that we're, you know, largely kind of returning to some semblance of normal societally and institutions have that inertia of, you know, they could go back to the old normal in the way that we've done things, but having had this taste of innovation and taste of change and taste of online learning or, you know, taste of, of using technology in different ways, both for in the classroom, for, you know, providing student services, all the ways that we've changed the workforce, having a hybrid workforce. And yet we do have these budgetary pressures. And so I've heard really sad stories from a lot of folks at institutions who are saying, I really have a tough choice to make because I'm being asked to do more innovation, which is, you know, that's sometimes what the, the top leaders, that's kind of how they're articulating is do more innovation and also go back to normal and also cut all these positions and these technologies. And so, so we really have tough choices to make. So I think that institutional resilience and that ability to discern what are the things that really are going to move the dial on your value proposition as an institution and um, on your strategy and, and really staying true to that is, is going to be really important. Thank you for joining us on Digital to Learn. If you enjoyed this podcast, there are three things we ask you to do. One, come back and join us again. Two, tell your friends about us. And three, give us a positive ranking on your favorite podcast platform. Digital to Learn is brought to you by the Center for Learning and Innovation at Indiana Wesleyan University. Embrace the future. Always keep learning.